0: This is Keywords, and I'm Zoe Cummins. This week, windows. I'm standing at my front window, and from here, you and I are going to peer into the lives and minds of Rachel Nequin, Christine Leach, Emily S. Cooper, Tracy Tuff, Conan Wynn, Amanda Bell, and Alison Martin, with audio they've sent us. From our creative Keywords neighbourhood, we're going to find out what they can see from their windows.
1: Do you have a favourite animal? A giraffe! A giraffe! What's that? This is a it's
0: early morning and only those who have to be are up. Sound artist and producer Rachel Lee Quinn is just out of bed and is playing with her daughter Fawn.
1: Do you want to interview me? Ask me questions or I'll ask you questions. Okay, so funny. you're at what age? What age are you? Two.
0: You can just see them at their kitchen table. My window at home is still and we look out at it
1: quite a lot. We even shout hello at people going by or in the early morning sun draw on the black sill with my cold tea or with a cup of water. The very crucial learning about the world that happens from spending time with the smallest thing. How beautiful a water drop is in the sun. How it moves like mercury when joined up with another drop. These are things my two-year-old is learning for the first time. But it is an
0: important reminder for me too over spilled muesli and tea Rachel is thinking back to different days when she was on the move When I was in college
1: I went on a cheap package holiday to Morocco with my boyfriend When we got to the departure lounge I bumped into my two photography lecturers They knew Morocco well and were on the same flight They invited us over for breakfast one day and then to a village further north another day My lecturer handed me a video camera and told me to record what I liked on the drive up there I almost immediately turned it on and started taping out the window of the car. Outside was brown and dry and there was very little relief beyond a coarser or finer ground. The odd tree. I'm not sure if I even saw a goat or a donkey. Maybe one man with a small bundle of fruit at the side of the road. But the rhythm of the twists and turns of the road and the colours so different from the Irish landscape compelled me to continue filming. Shortly before arriving in the town, the camera ran out of battery and there was nothing to record this sharp explosion of colour in people. My cheeks were hot, thinking I had not done a very good job in charge of the camera. But now, what of it? Why was the dun-coloured landscape less interesting than the town, the quality of the land, the geography of the road? This is what the place looks like. And strangely, I can't remember the town. I know there were square buildings with shining blue and white walls, but my memories of the road twisting and turning, the sound of the air-conditioner, the breeze from the window slapping my hair against my face, the brown wrinkles of the hills, the flat platters of trees famous for holding goats. I'm sorry I didn't record the interesting things, but I did record what interested me. The movement through the place, that feeling of looking out the window when you travel, dancing each photograph into a line, a rhythm, a metre, the sinewy figure of eight climbing and descending, like an aircraft banking a sharp left the remnants of a rusty bus carcass below, Everything slightly too far away. And I wasn't to know there would be more colour. Should we ignore the present and save our attention for an unknown future, or should we go full tilt? How do we learn to predict the peaks and troughs, when to hold back and conserve our attention? Maybe this is why road trips are a thing. We do not know what is coming, so we pay attention to everything, the repetitive, normal, banal things become novel. And with this novelty, we become aware of a nuance. You ask me some questions. What's your food? What's my favourite food? Um, I like olives. Hi. We look out at the locked park and are silently pleased when the police clear the desperate athletes from the children's playground. I wouldn't call the police, but I would also like to use the park and don't. People who don't look at windows probably use the park. I'm not mad, though. There are plenty of green spaces nearby. The only ones who get me down are the young lads playing basketball with multiple basketballs for hours every evening. They aren't even getting any better.
0: Just in front of the basketball court, a woman has parked. She doesn't notice the players. She's too busy lifting a box from her car through her blue gate and up the path. She slips in through the side entrance. She's just been to the local charity shop and had a little tussle with another person who is also eyeing up the slide projector for sale. This woman, this poet, Emily S. Cooper, wins the scuffle, pays and leaves and now she is home with her new slide projector. She has a plan.
2: I arrive back at the house with a box full of my father's slides and photographs. The projector whirs. I fill one of the wheels with slides. I'm not sure how to work the mechanism. I push them into the compartments by hand. A sideways picture of me on a swing spreads across the attic wall. I turn the lens to focus the beam. Perhaps I should do this in the dark. I don't want to wait until night. There are no curtains up here. Some slides get stuck, my father on a bridge, my auntie in a bikini smoking, an American sign reflected in some water. I try to gently tease them out, end up scratching them with my nails. I rummage through the photographs among the slides. I've grown tired of inserting them in the machine. My father was a prolific photographer. There are photographs of us as babies, eating yogurts, playing with unknown dogs. There are paper folders of much older portraits. My grandparents' wedding, holidays and carry in a van, flash the whippet, one of my grandmother in a green dress. I recognise it as one I inherited when her house was cleared. On the back of it is written, This was taken at Woodburn's House Hotel in March. I made this frock with stole myself. It is jade green Japanese satin. Woodburn's House Hotel burnt down in 1971. I find a photograph of firemen with hoses wetting a blazing Georgian façade through the windows. This happened two years before my father's family was burnt out of their home and business in North Belfast. The jade dress must have been among the belongings that survived. The man jailed for the bombing of the hotel was later charged with fraud involving a string of resorts along the Calabrian coast. He also blew up a bacon factory. I take a walk down the promenade through the windows and through to the back gardens of the houses. There are outhouses and courtyards that I will never enter. The floorboards lay parallel paths towards this unknown world. When I get home, I will look at the slides again, force them in front of the bulb, hold them still as the images glide over the ball patches on the wall where the paintings used to be.
0: From Emily S. Cooper's attic window, You can just about see to the end of the cul-de-sac. I can see it too from my window. There, tucked away, is a house with very old windows. They look like they might need replacing. Last winter, I twitched my curtains and watched removal vans come and go. The sold sign was taken down and a woman closed the door behind her. She sits with boxes of her belongings all around her. During the middle of one of the hellish parts of separation... There are
3: many hellish parts. When no one knows your marriage is possibly irretrievably broken because you were still genuinely trying to save it in private. I meet an old friend. I'm praying for anchors for you, he said. He didn't know what
0: was going on, but he could see that I was sad and he thought that I was adrift. This is art critic and writer Christine Leach with windows and anchors. She is finally home to her new home. We are a family of sailors,
3: but I am not one. It might be truer to say we are a family who builds boats. Not professionally, but we have done it over several generations, and I am one. My boat was a kayak. A story for another time. My grandad built a sailing boat. He kept a display case of navigational instruments. Inside the box, a label on one instrument reads, True Course. True Course. What is our true course in life? Maybe anchors are what hold you down. We probably all need hallowed and ancient navigational tools in our lives. Mine are behind glass and the wisdom they contain seems preserved there. The case is lined with deep blue fabric. The surround is mahogany coloured wood. It opens like a window with a single framed pane hinged on one side. It closes with a lock. Labels typed on white paper cut into museum display style rectangles are propped up against the instruments inside. Repeating, averaging, sextant, reads one. Bell metal and silver. French, circa 1820, for longitude by lunar distance. Navigate, by the light of the moon. Gunter's Scale, ivory, 17th century. Pre-slide rule logarithmic scales Mathematical history Equinoctial dial, brass, 18th century For local solar time, latitude and magnetic variation being known Wisdom of the sun Knowledge that can only be built on other knowledge We need knowledge of our ancestors' mistakes and missteps as well as their accolades and progressions We all go backwards sometimes, as well as on There is a tiny tin of sea-sickness tablets marked Poison. Swallow one only with water half an hour before sailing. Stoneflake Chemist, Smith Street, Guernsey. All of that text fits on the lid of a tin the approximate size and shape of a large heavy coin. Travelling might make you sick, but there are potentially fatal potions you can take to mitigate the symptoms. The tin is worn at the edges as though it was carried in a pocket. These objects live in a glass-fronted display box the size of a medium casement window. There is a locked pane of glass between me and them. Years before I was married, I went on a writing course with the author Gerard Donovan. He spoke about starting points for writing being like windows passing, an idea, a character, an opening line. I imagine them going by in a kind of conveyor belt, or like train windows passing. It's up to you, he said, to pick one to jump through. Life is full of windows. We can choose to watch from the inside or outside or we can open one and climb through. Right now we're in a lockdown. Panes of glass separate us from those we can't visit and places we can't go. I want to open the window that is the navigational display case and listen to the sound of the sea, the noise of the knowledge, the breath of my ancestors, the panting sigh, huff and sob of the journey. The echo of the progression that isn't possible unless you jump with or without navigational tools through one of those passing windows. An anchor doesn't stop this, but it holds you in the vicinity of one spot long enough to rest, halt, restock, refuel, reconsider your position, weather the storm or get your bearings. Then you can reel it in or cut it loose and jump. I am here right now in the house I bought after my divorce. New windows installed. They are remarkably soundproof. But then there is this window, through which birdsong wakes me at 3.30am. A piercing, repetitive sound. Insistent. Unapologetic. Instinctive. Driven by a navigational system I will never know or understand. Friends send me birdsong recordings from London and elsewhere. They are singing louder under lockdown. Birds have no anchors, only the potential of flight. Their navigational knowledge is inbuilt and they will never not choose the open
0: window. Next door to Christine is poet Amanda Bell. She too wants to know more about the nature of birds, but right now she's a little puzzled. She's misplaced a CD of bird calls, of swifts. She wants to play it out her window to encourage the migrating birds to land for the summer in her
4: patch. I can hear them above the clouds, and when the sky clears, can see them wheeling through the blue. Some of them may have been airborne since last summer, eating and sleeping on the wing from here to Africa and back, not touching down once. A few years ago,
0: Amanda mounted a breeding box for Swifts into the eaves. It's still there, but the
4: birds have never been tempted to use it. She hopes that this year might be the year. A vacant swift box is just over my window. I sit here a lot these days, looking out across the tops of the trees. When lockdown began, the branches were bare, so I had a clear view of a pair of magpies when they began to build a nest. The construction went on for over a fortnight, and involved an intricate dance as they weaved in and out between vertical branches with long sticks in their beaks. Now, the nest is fully concealed by leaves, but I can see the breeding pair make forays for food, swooping down to steal from pigeons and starlings, and plucking my seedlings out of pots to look for worms in the moist soil. They land on my windowsill and peck at the putty around the panes. They know I'm in here, but avoid making eye contact. This is how we live now, through panes of plexiglass, visors, goggles. This May, our local festival moved online, but the community spirit lives in the windows. Hand-drawn posters encouraging us to stay home, save lives, entries for the children's art competition, and teddy bears who change positions and outfits. My teddy bear is old and bald, grey and brown where he used to be white and gold. He kept me company the summer I had the measles and spent long days staring out the back bedroom window at the neighbours playing outside. His black plastic nose and my warm pink one pressed enviously against the glass. Down below intent on their game of tag they seemed unaware of being watched and I so badly wanted to give them something to let them know how much I missed them, how I longed to be out there too, feeling the last of the evening sun as it cooled on the grass. My books stood in a shelf between a pair of Victorian bookends, wedge-shaped blocks of rose quartz with a small plaster robin perched on top of each one. They seemed like the loveliest things I had to offer. I opened the window as far as the safety catch would allow and launched one of the bookends out towards my friends down below. It was so heavy it fell short, crashed through the honeysuckle, and landed on the patio paving stones with a dull thud, smashing the robin and blunting the sharp corners of the quartz. This is what I remember. My mother tells me, as she does of many such childhood memories, that it never happened but she doesn't know why there is only one bookend. I'd like to
0: think that the robin on that bookend hurled out the window didn't crash down, and maybe it's still in flight. It's evening now, so lights are starting to come on in the houses around here. It's unseasonably hot for spring, so there's another open window. You can hear musician Conan Wynn. This is his music, thinking of an exit. He's with his partner, radio producer Tracy Tuff. Their conversation turns to what it's like to have no windows for those not at home, for prisoners.
5: People are just kind of like normal people, trying to cope with their situation. They may have made a mistake, but they're still trying to live a normal life, but in a really awkward and weird space.
0: Tracy spoke to a prisoner in the U.S. a couple of years ago about what it's like to be in solitary confinement.
6: Yeah, well, I thought this would just be a good opportunity to provide a window into what it's actually like for people who are really, you know, in lockdown or in solitary. The cell is just a little bit smaller than a horse stable. It's about 80 square feet.
5: No actual contact, but... You know, you can talk to people, and you hear, you know, guys will bang and start a ruckus. One guy will literally start jumping on his bunk loud as he can and scream. Another guy will do it with another guy until, like, the guards shut it down. Like, that's a big thing in solitary confinement. That's just, you know, believe it or not, helps keep you sane. When you're jumping and screaming with ten other guys on your bunk, because that's the only contacts you have with human, I unless you got guys on each side of you. It's like being in the hole, you're locked down 23 hours a day. They give you an hour wreck in the middle of the night, <laughs> and if you don't wake up, you miss it. You know, I write to my mom, send me addresses to anyone you think that's gonna write me back, you know, and call them and give them a heads up. That's what I did, I I worked out, I wrote, I I read. I played chess with my neighbor. You know, you teach, yeah, like you each make up a chess board and chess pieces and same with like battleship checkers. But it's it's hard because you're playing from your mind
6: your neighbor playing chess when you're in solitary.
5: You're making a chessboard, then you're ripping little pieces of paper up, putting all his people on one side and all your people on the other. And then, like, okay, okay, let's start. Okay, I'm going here, you know, and... and that's what talking, you do. just talking. Back and forth, yeah. Through the wall. Uh-huh. Why? Wow. Yeah. Listen... There's, there's guys in, in prison that can play chess better than any savant so on, on the outside.
6: Is there any way to mentally prepare?
5: <laughs> you can't. You're going to go crazy. Like if you're been more than 90 days in solitary, you're going to go crazy. So then you just got to reel yourself back.
0: It's darkness now in our little neighbourhood. Children on their way to bed. Curtains being drawn. Blinds coming down. There's a woman down the street joining in the nationwide effort to shine a light from our windows for frontline workers and those affected by COVID-19. Sometimes a show of solidarity also sparks an unlikely flicker of romance between two neighbours. Here's Alison Martin.
6: From where I am, it could be Christmas. The coloured lights outside smudged by the frosted glass. I put my torch on and put it behind the curtain. Then I start worrying. We live on a street, so what if the glare from my torch is so strong that I blind an oncoming driver and send her or him on a collision course with one of the houses? I tilt the screen upwards and away from the road just in case. There's no point tempting fate either. Like a snooker player who has gone to pot, I stick my head out to see what angle my light of hope and possible carnage is shooting from. One house down the road does indeed seem to have their Christmas lights on and then I notice your lights flashing across the road. They are so subtle at first I almost don't notice. You start punctuating your light with stops and starts. One long ray followed by two shorter rays, then another long one. Is this like when you flash another car on a lonely stretch of road, or give the one fingered salute off a steering wheel? I'd better answer back, I think, and so I do one flashback followed by three shorter ones. Hello. How are you? You flash back twice, then me three times. Have I said too much? Have I left that one X too many at the end of a text? It's too late now. This is my siren song. I am a lighthouse and I am guiding the love boat into port. Our shutter telegraph lasts about ten minutes. Perhaps you would say longer. Then it gets awkward. Who leaves first? Who is the first one to hang up? It feels callous to switch the light off abruptly. Not least because it is for the frontline workers and the ill. We shouldn't be flirting at all at a time like this. I retreat gently from the door keeping my light on and you do too. Then yours goes, then mine. That warm feeling returns as I take another sip of hot chocolate and wonder about the possibilities for our difficult second date. Bin day on Tuesday.
0: (laughs) Well, relationships can start in the most unlikely ways. The first photograph that I remember my husband taking of me was on our third date. He's sitting looking at me, and I'm sitting at the window, looking back over my shoulder at him. It sits in a little wooden frame on the shelf in my office. The glass cracked, but I never fixed it. It didn't seem necessary. The moment itself was still captured, preserved. Writers create windows for people to look through. At characters, at situations. Just a chink so they can get a glimpse of another life. One story I often return to is The Wonderful Window by Lord Dunsany. It's from the Book of Wonder, and in it, Mr. Sladden, the silliest young man in business, gives all the money he has to an old man crouched in the street in exchange for a magical window. Mr. Sladden had never before seen a window sold in the street, so he asked the price of it. Its price is all you possess, said the old man. Where did you get it, said Mr. Sladden, for it was a strange window. I gave all that I possessed for it on the streets of Baghdad. Did you possess much, said Mr. Sladden? I had all that I wanted, he said, except this window. It must be a good window, said the young man. It's a magical window, said the old one. Mr. Sladden brings the window home and installs it, and when looking through it, he makes out a whole new world through the window. He gazes far, far beneath him on a medieval city set with towers, complete with brown roofs and cobbled streets and white walls and buttresses. Above, the idle archers loll on towers, and above each tower, Mr. Sladen sees banners with little golden dragons. He sees the carefree attitude among the townspeople, their calm movements about the streets... It's a fantastical world. One day, Mr. Sladden peers through the window to his golden dragon world. It's under siege. On fire. The archer's dead. The crowd's trying to escape. Others taking refuge indoors. He smashes through the window to try to help. But as it breaks, he can no longer see the world below the window... I'm standing outside our kitchen window and all of our kids are inside at the table chewing, playing, laughing, (laughs) fighting. I just stand there for a minute looking in. A window provides a frame for you to do just that. This one frames my small world. I'm waiting for my husband to come home. It's that awful hour around dinner when chaos reigns in the house. He arrives back. And there's our children and my husband, in the kitchen, looking out at me. Each window is fragile. When broken, they must be mended and restored to protect what's on the inside. Each window is where the light gets in. And even the broken ones sometimes let in more light. Now I look at my family through the window and I know that this is the image of my life that I'll have with me forever. Even if the glass cracks or the future shatters. As the kids play with my husband, I want to run inside and join the fun. But before I do, I stop and ask myself, like Mr. Sladden in Dunsany's The Wonderful Window, how much I would pay for this window? And it's a simple answer. I would pay all that I possess. This is all that I possess. That's it from our creative little neighbourhood this week. Keywords is a New Normal Culture production funded by the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland, Sound and Vision Scheme.